Chapter Three, Part Three of the Nigger of the Narcissus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Chapter Three, Part Three. Mister Baker left his insecure place and crawled with stoppages along the poop. In the dark and on all fours, he resembled some carnivorous animal prowling amongst corpses. At the break propped to windward of a stanchion he looked down on the main deck it seemed to him that the ship had a tendency to stand up a little more the wind had eased a little he thought but the sea ran as high as ever the waves foamed viciously and the lee side of the deck disappeared under a hissing whiteness as of boiling milk while the rigging sang steadily with a deep vibrating note and at every upward swing of the ship the wind rushed with a long-drawn clamor amongst the spars. Mr. Baker watched very still. A man near him began to make a blabbing noise with his lips, all at once, and very loud, as though the cold had broken brutally through him. He went on, ba, 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 burr, burr, ba, ba. Stop that, cried Mr. Baker, groping in the dark. Stop it. He went on shaking the leg he found under his hand. "'What is it, sir?' called out Belfast, in the tone of a man awakened suddenly. "'We're looking after that ere Jimmy. Are you? Ah, don't make that row, then. Who's that near you?' "'It's me, the bosun, sir,' growled the West Country man. "'We're trying to keep the life in that poor devil.' "'Aye, aye,' said Mr. Baker. "'Do it quietly, can't you?' "'He wants us to hold him up above the rail,' went on the boatswain, with irritation. "'Says he can't breathe here under our jackets.' "'If we lift him, we drop him overboard,' said another voice. "'We can't feel our hands with cold.' "'I don't care, I'm choking,' exclaimed James Waite in a clear tone. "'Oh, no, my son,' said the boatswain desperately. "'You don't go till we all go on this fine night.' "'You will see yet many a worse,' said Mr. Baker cheerfully. "'It's no child's play, sir,' answered the boatswain. "'Some of us further aft, here, are in a pretty bad way. "'If the blame sticks had been cut out of her, "'she would be running along on her bottom now like any decent ship, "'and give us all a chance,' said someone with a sigh. "'The old man wouldn't have it. "'Much he cares for us,' whispered another. "'Care for you!' exclaimed Mr. Baker angrily. "'Why should he care for you? "'Are you a lot of women passengers to be taken care of? "'We are here to take care of the ship, "'and some of you ain't up to that. "'Och, what have you done so very smart to be taken care of? "'Och, some of you can't stand a bit of a breeze without crying over it.' "'Come, sir, we ain't so bad,' protested Belfast, "'in a voice shaken by shivers. "'We ain't... Brr. again shouted the mate grabbing at the shadowy form again why you're in your shirt what have you done i've put my oilskin and jacket over that half-dead nagrer and he says he chokes said belfast complainingly you wouldn't call me nigger if i wasn't half-dead you irish beggar boomed james waite vigorously you brr you wouldn't be white if you were ever so well I will fight you, brr, in fine weather, brr, with one hand tied behind my back, brr. I don't want your rags, I want air, gasped out the other faintly, as if suddenly exhausted. 
The sprays swept over whistling and pattering. Men disturbed in their peaceful torpor by the pain of quarrelsome shouts moaned, muttering curses. Mr. Baker crawled off a little way to leeward where a water cask loomed up big with something white against it. "'Is it you, Podmore?' asked Mr. Baker. He had to repeat the question twice before the cook turned, coughing feebly. "'Yes, sir. I've been praying in my mind for a quick deliverance, for I am prepared for any call. I—' "'Look here, cook,' interrupted Mr. Baker. "'The men are perishing with cold.' cold said the cook mournfully they will be warm enough before long what asked mr baker looking along the deck into the faint sheen of frothing water they are a wicked lot continued the cook solemnly but in an unsteady voice about as wicked as any ship's company in this sinful world now i he trembled so that he could hardly speak his was an exposed place and in a cotton shirt, a thin pair of trousers, and with his knees under his nose, he received quaking the flicks of stinging salt drops. His voice sounded exhausted. Now, I, any time. My eldest youngster, Mr. Baker, a clever boy, last Sunday on shore before this voyage, he wouldn't go to church, sir. Says I, you go and clean yourself, or I'll know the reason why. What does he do? pond mr baker fell into the pond in his best rig sir accident nothing will save you fine scholar there you are says i accident i whomped him sir till i couldn't lift my arm his voice faltered i whopped him he repeated rattling his teeth then after a while let out a mournful sound that was half a groan half a snore mr baker shook him by the shoulders hey cook hold up podmore tell me is there any fresh water in the galley tank the ship is lying along less i think i would try to get forward a little water would do them good hello look out look out the cook struggled not you sir not you he began to scramble to windward galley my business he shouted cook's going crazy now said several voices he yelled crazy am i I am more ready to die than any of you officers inclusive there. As long as she swims, I will cook. I will get you coffee. Cook, ye are a gentleman, cried Belfast. But the cook was already going over the weather ladder. He stopped for a moment to shout back on the poop, As long as she swims, I will cook, and disappeared as though he had gone overboard. The men who had heard sent after him a cheer that sounded like a wail of sick children. An hour or more afterwards, someone said distinctly, He's gone for good. Very likely, assented the boatswain. Even in fine weather, he was as smart about the deck as a milch cow on our first voyage. We ought to go and see. Nobody moved. As the hours dragged slowly through the darkness, Mr. Baker crawled back and forth along the poop several times. Some men fancied they had heard him exchange murmurs with the master, but at that time the memories were incomparably more vivid than anything actual, and they were not certain whether the murmurs were heard now or many years ago. They did not try to find out. A mutter, more or less, did not matter. It was too cold for curiosity and almost for hope. They could not spare a moment or a thought from the great mental occupation of wishing to live. 
and the desire of life kept them alive, apathetic and enduring, under the cruel persistence of wind and cold, while the bestarred black dome of the sky revolved slowly above the ship that drifted, bearing their patience and their suffering through the stormy solitude of the sea. Huddled close to one another, they fancied themselves utterly alone. They heard sustained loud noises, and again bore the pain of existence through long hours of profound silence. In the night they saw sunshine, felt warmth, and suddenly, with a start, thought that the sun would never rise upon a freezing world. Some heard laughter, listened to songs, others, near the end of the poop, could hear loud human shrieks, and, opening their eyes, were surprised to hear them still, though very faint and far away. The boatswain said, Why is the cook hailing from forward, I think? He hardly believed his own words or recognized his own voice. It was a long time before the man next to him gave a sign of life. He punched hard his other neighbor and said, The cook's shouting. Many did not understand, others did not care. The majority further aft did not believe. But the boatswain and another man had the pluck to crawl away forward to sea. They seemed to have been gone for hours, and were very soon forgotten. Then, suddenly, men who had been plunged in a hopeless resignation became as if possessed with a desire to hurt. They belabored one another with fists. In the darkness they struck persistently anything soft they could feel near, and with a greater effort than for a shout whispered excitedly, "'They've got some hot coffee!' "'Bosun got it!' "'No! Where?' It's coming. Cook made it. James Waite moaned. Duncan scrambled viciously, caring not where he kicked, and anxious that the officer should have none of it. It came in a pot, and they drank in turns. It was hot, and while it blistered the greedy palates, it seemed incredible. The men sighed out, parting with the mug. How has he done it? Some cried weakly. Bully for you, doctor. He had done it somehow. Afterwards, Archie declared that the thing was miraculous. For many days we wondered, and it was the one ever-interesting subject to conversation to the end of the voyage. We asked the cook in fine weather how he felt when he saw his stove reared up on end. We inquired in the northeast trade and on serene evenings whether he had to stand on his head to put things right somewhat. We suggested he had used his breadboard for a raft, and from there comfortably had stoked his grate, and we did our best to conceal our admiration under the wit of fine irony. He affirmed not to know anything about it, rebuked our levity, declared himself, with solemn animation, to have been the object of a special mercy for the saving of our unholy lives. Fundamentally, he was right, no doubt but he need not have been so offensively positive about it he need not have hinted so often that it would have gone hard with us had he not been there meritorious and pure to receive the inspiration and the strength for the work of grace had we been saved by his recklessness or his agility we could have at length become reconciled to the fact but to admit our obligation to anybody's virtue and holiness alone was as difficult for us as for any other handful of mankind. 
Like many benefactors of humanity, the cook took himself too seriously, and reaped the reward of irreverence. We were not ungrateful, however. He remained heroic. His saying, the saying of his life, became proverbial in the mouth of men, as are the sayings of conquerors or sages. Later, whenever one of us was puzzled by a task and advised to relinquish it, he would express his determination to persevere and to succeed by the words, As long as she swims, I will cook. The hot drink helped us through the bleak hours that precede the dawn. The sky low by the horizon took on the delicate tints of pink and yellow like the inside of a rare shell, and higher, where it glowed with a pearly sheen, a small black cloud appeared like a forgotten fragment of the night set in a border of dazzling gold. The beams of light skipped on the crest of waves. The eyes of men turned to the eastward. The sunlight flooded their weary faces. They were giving themselves up to fatigue as though they had done forever with their work. On Singleton's black oilskin coat the dried salt glistened like hoar-frost. He hung on by the wheel with open and lifeless eyes. Captain Alliston, unblinking, faced the rising sun. His lips stirred, open for the first time in twenty-four hours, and with a fresh, firm voice he cried, "'Where ship!' The commanding sharp tones made all those torpid men start like a sudden flick of a whip. Then again, motionless where they lay, the force of habit made some of them repeat the order in hardly audible murmurs. Captain Alliston glanced down at his crew, and several, with fumbling fingers and hopeless movements, tried to cast themselves adrift. He repeated impatiently, "'Where ship? Now then, Mr. Baker, get the men along. What's the matter with them? Where ship? Do you hear there?' "'Where ship?' thundered out the boatswain suddenly." His voice seemed to break through a deadly spell. Men began to stir and crawl. "'I want the foretop-mast staysail run up smartly,' said the master, very loudly. "'If you can't manage it standing up, you must do it lying down. That's all. Bear a hand. Come along. Let's give the old girl a chance,' urged the boatswain. "'Aye, aye, wear ship!' exclaimed quavering voices." The forecastle men, with reluctant faces, prepared to go forward. Mr. Baker pushed ahead, grunting on all fours to show the way, and they followed him over the break. The others lay still with a vile hope in their hearts of not being required to move till they got saved or drowned in peace. After some time they could be seen forward appearing on the forecastle head, one by one in unsafe attitudes, hanging on to the rails, clambering over the anchors, embracing the crosshead of the windlass, or hugging the forecapstan. They were restless with strange exertions, waved their arms, knelt, lay flat down, staggered up, seemed to strive their hardest to go overboard. Suddenly a small white piece of canvas fluttered amongst them, grew larger, beating. Its narrow head rose in jerks, and at last it stood distendent and triangular in the sunshine. "'They have done it!' cried the voices aft. Captain Alliston let go the rope he had round his wrist, and rolled to leeward headlong. He could be seen casting the lee main braces off the pins, while the backwash of waves splashed over him. "'Square the main-yard!' he shouted up to us, who stared at him in wonder. 
we hesitated to stir. The main brace, men, haul, haul anyhow, lay on your backs and haul, he screeched, half drowned down there. We did not believe we could move the main yard, but the strongest and the less discouraged tried to execute the order. Others assisted half-heartedly. Singleton's eyes blazed suddenly as he took a fresh grip of the spokes. Captain Allison fought his way up to windward. Haul, men, try to move it. Haul and help the ship. His hard face worked suffused and furious. Is she going off, Singleton? he cried. Not a move yet, sir, croaked the old seaman in a horribly hoarse voice. Watch the helm, Singleton, sputtered the master. Haul, men, have you no more strength than rats? Haul and earn your salt. Mr. Crichton, on his back, with a swollen leg and a face as white as a piece of paper, blinked his eyes, his bluish lips twitched. In the wild scramble, men grabbed at him, crawled over his hurt leg, knelt on his chest. He kept perfectly still, setting his teeth without a moan, without a sigh. The master's ardor, the cries of that silent man, inspired us. We hauled and hung in bunches on the rope. We heard him say with violence to Duncan, who sprawled abjectly on his stomach, I will brain you with this belaying pin if you don't catch hold of the brace. And that victim of man's injustice, cowardly and cheeky, whimpered, Are you going to murder us now? While with sudden desperation he gripped the rope. Men sighed, shouted, hissed meaningless words, groaned. The yards moved, came slowly square against the wind that hummed loudly on the yard arms. Going off, sir, shouted Singleton. She's just started. Catch a turn with that brace. Catch a turn, clamored the master. Mr. Crichton, nearly suffocated and unable to move, made a mighty effort and with his left hand managed to nip the rope. All fast, cried someone. He closed his eyes as if going off into a swoon, while huddled together about the brace, we watched with scared looks what the ship would do now. She went off slowly, as though she had been weary and disheartened like the men she carried. She paid off very gradually, making us hold our breath till we choked, and as soon as she had brought the wind abaft the beam, she started to move and fluttered our hearts. It was awful to see her, nearly overturned, begin to gather way and drag her submerged side through the water. The dead eyes of the rigging churned the breaking seas. The lower half of the deck was full of mad whirlpools and eddies, and the long line of the lee rail could be seen showing black now and then in the swirls of a field of foam as dazzling and white as a field of snow. The wind sang shrilly amongst the spars, and at every slight lurch we expected her to slip to the bottom sideways from under our backs. When dead before it, she made the first distinct attempt to stand up, and we encouraged her with a feeble and discordant howl. A great sea came running up aft and hung for a moment over us with a curling top, then crashed down under the counter and spread out on both sides into a great sheet of bursting froth. Above its fierce hiss we heard Singleton's croak, She is steering! He had both his feet now planted firmly on the grating, and the wheel spun fast as he eased the helm. Bring the wind on the port quarter and steady her! called out the master, staggering to his feet, the first man up from amongst our prostrate heap. One or two screamed with excitement. She rises! 
Far away forward, Mr. Baker and three others were seen erect and black on the clear sky, lifting their arms, and with open mouths as though they had been shouting all together. The ship trembled, trying to lift her side, lurched back, seemed to give up with a nerveless dip, and suddenly, with an unexpected jerk, swung violently to windward, as though she had torn herself out from a deadly grasp. The whole immense volume of water lifted by her deck was thrown bodily across to starboard. Loud cracks were heard. Iron ports breaking open thundered with ringing blows. The water topped over the starboard rail with the rush of a river falling over a dam. The sea on deck and the seas on every side of her mingled together in a deafening roar. She rolled violently. We got up and were helplessly run or flung about from side to side. Men rolling over and over yelled, The house will go. She clears herself. Lifted by a towering sea, she ran along with it for a moment, spouting thick streams of water through every opening of her wounded sides. The lee braces, having been carried away or washed off the pins, all the ponderous yards on the fore swung from side to side, and with appalling rapidity at every roll. The men forward were seen crouching here and there with fearful glances upwards at the enormous spars that whirled about over their heads. The torn canvas and the ends of broken gear streamed in the wind like wisps of hair. Through the clear sunshine over the flashing turmoil and uproar of the seas, the ship ran blindly, dishevelled and headlong, as if fleeing for her life, and on the poop we spun, we tottered about, distracted and noisy. We all spoke at once in a thin babble. We had the aspects of invalids and the gestures of maniacs. Eyes shone, large and haggard and smiling, meagre faces that seemed to have been dusted over with powdered chalk. We stamped, clapped our hands, feeling ready to jump and do anything, but in reality hardly able to keep on our feet. Captain Alliston, hard and slim, gesticulated madly from the poop at Mr. Baker, Steady those foreyards, steady them the best you can. On the main deck, men, excited by his cries, splashed, dashing aimlessly, here and there with the foam swirling up to their waists. Apart, far aft, and alone by the helm, old Singleton had deliberately tucked his white beard under the top button of his glistening coat. Swaying upon the dim and tumult of the seas, with the whole battered length of the ship launched forward in a rolling rush before his steady old eyes, he stood rigidly still, forgotten by all, and with an attentive face. In front of his erect figure only the two arms moved crosswise with a swift and sudden readiness to check or urge again the rapid stir of circling spokes. He stared with care. End of chapter 3